In the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I think Jesus was one of those people who made things seem easy. You know, like a pro ball player who, who catches a ball and it just seems like without any effort at all? Or a poet who just speaks words lyrically off the top of her head like it's nothing at all? I mean, I think he was one of those sorts of people. I don't know about you, I've never had a knack for catching a fly ball. I mean, it would hit me on the head, you know? I just I couldn't do it as much as I tried. My kids were much better than I ever was. Uh, I struggled to scru- you know, just to, to scribble out a few lines of poetry. I try, try. I have to concentrate. I mean, I really have to concentrate to do mathematics or physics or music. I mean, I have to work at this stuff. It, whatever it is, it seems... I know I'm not the dullest knife in the drawer, but I know I'm not the sharpest either. You know what I mean? You know, I, I see people who do these sorts of things, and they make it seem easy. I think that's why following Jesus had to be really exciting. I think people who followed him were really excited, because I, I think he was one of those kind of people, you know, who, who, who made things seem easy. And the people who followed him were normal, hardworking, everyday kind of regular people. They were men who were fishermen. They'd probably probably acquired some skill at fishing. You know, they probably were were adept at it. You know, they they made a good living. People in the the community probably counted on them to put food on the table. The women who followed Jesus were probably normal, ordinary women of the first century who kept a home, raised children, those sorts of things. I think that they were just normal, ordinary people. Jesus, a carpenter by trade, one day shows up. In come these fishermen, empty nets, had caught nothing, had been out all night. A carpenter says to them, go back out, put your nets on the other side. They do, and guess what? A big haul of fish. Of course, of course he did. He tells them how to fish, and they fish. But he's not arrogant. He's not haughty. He's confident. He's not cocky. He's firm, but he's gentle. I think he is the kind of person who you see and you think, wow, how does he do that sort of stuff? But here's the other side. Here's the catch. I think in most of the ways, if you had seen Jesus, if you had lived during the time that Jesus lived, I think most of the things that you would have noticed about him is that he was strikingly normal. In fact, very ordinary, very commonplace. Uh, I know, I know it's hard for you to imagine this, but can you imagine that Jesus might have had knobby knees? Um, that he might have been a, a little bit dyslexic maybe, or flat-footed, or I don't know. He just, that he was very common, very much like ordinary people. It, he's the kind of guy that maybe you would you know, be in a grocery store, and you see this guy standing in the aisle, and he's looking at a box of cereal. He's got Fruity Pebbles in one hand, you know, and like Special K in the other, and he's, he's looking at the labels, and he's, you, know, you can see this struggle going on. That's me, by the way, in case you're wondering. You know, he's struggling. That kind of guy. Or, or maybe, maybe the guy in the bowling alley who throws a strike and jumps up in the air like he just bought a Toyota because he's really genuinely surprised to have thrown a strike. Maybe he could be that kind of guy. Or, or, or maybe the guy who you pull your car into the, to the oil change place and he's there changing the oil. Which reminds me, I need to change the oil in my car. But he's that kind of guy. Somebody remind me of that later, really. Um, you know, he's the guy who, who turns a wrench. A very ordinary, in many ways, common, typical person. 
I think as much as that you would be struck by his extraordinariness, I think you would be just as struck by his ordinariness. That he was very much a real person. Like I said, a person who might have knobby knees or flat feet. And so in some ways, we're like Jesus. I mean, because all of us are very ordinary, common people. Little little truth in advertising here. I have the flattest feet of any human being ever. You know what I mean? Um, I'm the kind of guy that when I get out of the swimming pool on a summer day and I walk across the concrete, you know how most people have this nice little imprint that's kind of like a little bit here and a little bit here and then these little... Not me. It looks like I stuck bricks to the bottom of my legs and walked across the... the I mean, it just little toes on the end of clubs, you know? Very ordinary. We're the kind of people who, you know, do regular things. We go to the grocery and look at labels and we go to the bank and to the dry cleaners and, and we live in a very work-a-day world. Every day is somewhat a repetition of the one before. Little variations. Maybe you're one of those people, one of these people sitting here today, whose work takes them to San Diego or somewhere like that, you know. Maybe you're one of those people who your job takes you wherever, you know. Maybe you get to go to Florida in January on occasion. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, those kind of... But by and large, most days look like the day before, don't they? I remember watching a movie not long ago. It um, had George Clooney in it, and he's on this airplane. He's he's kind of like this corporate hatchet guy, and he's flying around. He's always in a different city every day. But what struck me about the movie was every day was actually a repetition of the one before. Different place, different hotel, different airplane, but it's always the same thing. His life, though it was different than ours, was very ordinary. He just did what what people do. I think that's why we're kind of caught up with the whole reality TV uh, phase that we're going through in our country. Watching these reality programs on television, which I I deplore, by the way. I just just want to throw a brick at my TV. I mean, it's just so frustrating. But I know a lot of people watch them, and um, and a lot of people in my family watch them, and so I throw the bricks at them instead of the TV. And and so, um, you know, we kind of watch because we think to ourselves, maybe, maybe this person is different. You know, maybe their lives are different than ours. Maybe there's something extraordinary about them. You know, maybe maybe fame or fortune or, or talent or poverty or I don't know, whatever it is, it's going to be different. We'll look at them and we'll see in their lives something different. But it's not. Guess what they do? They go to the grocery and they go to the cleaners and they go to the bank and they get their oil changed in their cars and they sometimes fight with their spouses and, you know... In the, in the biggest case, they go to jail. And you don't want that kind of extraordinaryness, do you? They live the same sort of lives. So what was it about Jesus that made his life extraordinary? What was it about him that was so different? Here's the thing. I think it was that he lived a fully human life. I think it was that he was fully, truly human in the way that we want to be human. He did what we wished we could do. You see, it wasn't that he worked miracles. It wasn't that he was divine. Yes, he worked miracles and yes, he was divine. It wasn't that he was talented or charismatic or great preacher or wonderful orator. Yes, 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 all that sort of stuff. But it was more than that. It was that he was truly human. It was that he was human in ways that we wish we could be human. That he loved genuinely, authentically. 
that he was a true person with no guile, no deceit, no second motive, no ulterior kind of agenda. In the, um, the gospel lesson I read to you today, he's sort of giving his, um, his final farewell to his friends. He's facing the cross. He's about to, to be executed. He knows this is coming. And he's saying to his friends some final words. Most of them go like this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't that just like him? You know, here he is. He's the one who's facing death. And he's comforting them. You believe in God? Believe also in me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the good shepherd. You can trust me. I lay down my life for the sheep. I mean, all this really good comforting stuff. But then, <laughs> there's always that but then, right? But then, right in the middle of this, a little bit of advice. Abide in me. Remain attached to me. And he gives us a little metaphor. It, it, it's, a, it's a grape metaphor, a vineyard metaphor. I love when people use wine metaphors. It really thrills me. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about this. You know, uh, grapes are only good for one thing in the, in the first century and in the 21st century, for that matter. All the only thing they're, they're used for is to make wine. They didn't make jelly or juice or any of that sort of stuff. They made wine. And, and so this is a wine. You want a good vintage wine? You need good grapes. You, you need good grapes? Well, you need good branches. And if you need good branches, you need a good vine. You want a good wine, there's a lot that goes into it. And Jesus uses this metaphor to talk about the relationship that his friends have with him. The relationship between the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and Jesus. He's the vine. The disciples are the branches. He's the vine. We are the branches, right? You're following this metaphor. Just nod this way if you're getting it. Yeah, he, he is the, he's the vine. We're the branches. And that which comes out of our life is the fruit. Now, there's a downside to this thing, right? You, you caught the downside. There's a, little bit of a, there's a little bit of gray cloud to the silver lining. What happens if the branches don't produce fruit? They die. And he sort of gives us the life cycle, or I should say the death cycle. Here's what happens. They, they, they don't produce fruits. They begin to die. Something hinders their attachment to the vine. And so they start to wither. The fruit goes away. The branch starts to dry up. The gardener comes by and says, Oh, this branch isn't producing fruit. In fact, it's dead. He snips it off. He takes that branch and tosses it into the pile so that the other branches might continue to live. And you say to yourself, hmm, I don't have to think very hard before I follow that analogy all the way out to the end. If I'm a branch, and I'm not producing fruit, I'm going to wither. And as I begin to wither, alone's going to come the gardener and snip it off. It's a scary thing. But that's not the only way to look at this passage. Not just the negative, but the positive. Look at what he says. Look at, take your bulletin, will you? And look at the second verse with me in the gospel lesson. He says in the second verse, the, the, the vine dresser the, the, comes and removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Yeah, we got that part. We're down with that, right? But look at the next sentence. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. The father is the master vine dresser, the one who cares for the vines. Now listen, I don't know a thing about growing anything. I mean, the only thing I can grow is weeds in abundance. And um, besides that, and they pretty much do it for themselves, right? I know how to grow nothing. 
But this I know, that if you're going to grow a vineyard, you don't just plant some seeds and walk away and come back after a while and start plucking grapes. There's a lot of work that goes on continually. And, and the master, the master vine dresser is, is working to, to, to prune and to, to, to tend to that vine. Look what Jesus says. Look at that in, in that, that second verse. Every branch that bears fruit, the Father prunes. The real word here is cleanse. It, it's the same word where we get catheter or, or cathartic or, or he cleanses it. He cleanses it. Every branch that, that bears fruit, the Father prunes that it might bear more fruit. Listen to what he says. You've already been pruned. How? By the word that I have spoken to you. By the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me. Let my words remain in you. And that will continue to cleanse you and to prune you and to make you fruit-bearing branches. He wants to live in and through us. You see, that's what happens in a vineyard. The vine actually lives through the branches and produces fruit on the end. This is what Jesus wants to do through the church. And so people who have lived their lives controlled by anger find that when their life is deeply rooted in Christ, that the anger begins to dissipate. And people who live their lives controlled by lust and greed and selfishness find that as their, as their life is, is immersed more and more into Christ, what they find is generosity and chastity and goodness. Not because they try to do it. This isn't some kind of top-down, don't do that. We all learned that religion early, didn't we? Oh, I won't. You know, I'm fearful. This is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, all you have to do is remain attached to me. And as you do that, what will happen out of your life is that you'll begin to produce those things that you wished you could have done on your own. It's not about keeping some sort of list of rules. You want a list of rules? Come here. I'll give them to you. And you'll look at them and say, this is ridiculous. Well, yes, of course they're ridiculous. Because that's not what the Lord wants out of any of us. He doesn't want us to be some sort of robots who just maintain some rigid kind of adherence to a list of abstract rules. He wants to live through us and have real life, real excitement, real joy. What was it that made Jesus' life extraordinary? It was that he had true love, not just some sentiment. Oh, we have so destroyed that word, haven't we? Love has become sentimentality. It's like some syrupy, you know, Mrs. Butterworth's kind of something. I don't know what it is, but it's not what it really ought to be. Love is goodness. It is patience, it is kindness, it is gentleness, it is self-control. It is something that doesn't seek its own. It gives before it takes. Jesus says, you want this? Here's how you have it. Just remain attached to me. And so we come to church. Good, we should. But we should come listening. Not even listening to a sermon with Father Joe. As inspiring and uh, thrilling as that might be, you know, it's not about that. It's about coming and saying, Lord, what do you have to say to me today? What is it that you want to do in and through me today? And we come to the altar with empty hands. Oh, I love that we come with empty hands. You ever look down at your hands and come up and say, golly me, those were empty. I have nothing here. I come to give nothing. 
And in my empty hands, I receive something. Do you ever bite down on that wafer and not just think, my, this is tasteless, but think to yourself, I always feel bad when little kids come up, I wish it tasted better. Um, Not just that, but as I crush my teeth down on this bread, I am crushing the very body of Christ that he might live in me. And as I sip this wine, thinking nothing but then how little a drink can I take, but take a drink. Take a real drink and drink deeply the blood of Christ that comes into your body, into your life, and transforms you. See, that's what Jesus is saying. All you have to do. You want to live an extraordinary life? You want to live a life that is truly, radically different, extraordinary, world-changing? You won't be able to do it on your own. But if you abide in me, And if my words abide in you, you will glorify God because your life will produce such fruit that you could only imagine. He wants to live not just in us, but through us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.